Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you. This week on New Mexico in Focus, former UNM professor and author Jim Linnell on dealing with seemingly impossible odds. The minute I knew that I couldn't move, I knew that I was on a, I was on a path I had no idea what would have, well, where it would lead. And how well does Albuquerque work for its citizens who are living with disabilities? We speak to an advocate. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. One Albuquerque has been a rallying call for Mayor Tim Keller's administration, but a very visible symbol of that goal caught the attention of disability advocates. I'll have a conversation about that and about how well the city adheres to the Americans with Disabilities Act. New Mexico coffers are slated to expand by a whopping $907 million in new money for the budget, primarily due to oil and gas. It's a staggering financial windfall for the state, and while some lawmakers are looking at ways to spend, others are urging caution. The presidential campaign is certainly in full swing, including here in New Mexico. The Trump campaign feels we are ripe for a flip, which would make it the first time New Mexico will have voted Republican for president in 16 years. We debate the chances. We begin with the promise of paid time off for workers here in Bernalillo County. Here's the line. Bernalillo County is stepping into new territory after the county commission approved a paid leave measure by a 3-2 vote. Now, starting in July of next year, workers in unincorporated parts of the county must earn at least one hour of leave for every 32 hours they work. That's going to be the law of the land for any business with two or more employees. It doesn't affect Albuquerque, but... Some Albuquerque city councilors are toying with the idea of making another run at requiring leave in Albuquerque. That's where we start tonight. And with me is Laura sanchez Reve, a lawyer and director of government relations with Affirm Incorporated. Catherine McGill, founder director of the New Mexico Black Leadership Council. Tom Garrity is here of the Garrity Group Public Relations, another line regular he is. And former New Mexico State Representative Janice Arnold-Jones is back with us. Thank you all for being here. Now, Tom, this issue narrowly failed Albuquerque the last time it went to voters, but we had different language attached to that, didn't we? It was about paid sick leave. Mm -hmm. This is about just leave leave. Just do what, you know, do what you want with your own leave, with your own time. Does that make a huge difference here, that language, the, the, the wording? Um, it something about something else altogether? It, it, well, you know, the wording's different. Mm -hmm. uh, chamber's still against it. Right. Albuquerque, uh, Greater Albuquerque Chamber of Commerce is still against it. Yep. I, you know, I, I'm sure if they were to run it again in Albuquerque, it would have the same kind of result as far as the protest mm -hmm. um, for a couple of reasons, um, not the least of which is the November election that's coming up. Yes. And that you have four city councilors who are uh, all have a competitive race. Isaac Benton, who would be one of the sponsors, mm -hmm. has four different opponents who have uh, signed up to run against him as well. Mm -hmm. But there's also, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of push that we see as far as, you know, when you look at the things that uh, are in the county as far as, uh, you know, three days or 24 hours of leave during the first year. Mm -hmm. uh, it goes up to five days then seven days for the third year. Uh, it's really not that much. Mm -hmm. Now, I say that from my perspective as a small business owner, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, but it's a very different perspective of restaurants that have, you know, yeah. folks who have, you know, hourly employees. That's right. That's right. Uh, I'm not saying that that's an excuse. Sure. It's just an opportunity for the business owners to figure out their business model mm -hmm. so they can do the right thing. And, and they have it. the option to offer more. Oh, absolutely. It doesn't, absolutely. doesn't have to be just the county. That's, that would you know, be the bare minimum. Exactly yeah. right. Laura, your thoughts on this, too. I mean, there's, it's, Tom's bringing up some good stuff here. It's tricky. 
it's not onerous, but at the same time, it's hard to, to put that on business owners because they have a business to run. Do you know what I mean? So how, how does this work? But, and let me throw one more at you. The other side of it with paid sick leave is it costs people when you have money, people coming in sick into your business. So how do you balance these kind of things? Well, as somebody who's fighting a cold right now. That's right. <laughs> all the travel. Love that setup. Um, I definitely uh, think that it does cost um, productivity when you have people coming right. in sick. That's I mean, right. it potentially makes other people sick. In a restaurant environment, you don't want people sick serving or mm -hmm. handling food. That's just, that's just a huge problem for um, customers as well as fellow employees. Mm -hmm. In an office setting, you often find that you know, people, it's like a Petri dish. People end up picking up what, what other people have and, mm -hmm. and you really want them to try to get better. And I think that um, while you know, this particular one, when I read it and some of the details that Tom just mentioned, um, it didn't strike me as particularly onerous. Mm -hmm. Um, of course, I don't run a, a small business in the sense of, a, a, I think restaurants would be hardest hit probably, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but certainly other businesses um, probably have something similar to this already. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, New Mexico, this is a very interesting New Mexico conversation because when you look at other businesses, um, other companies in other states, um, there's, there's laws that require, statewide laws, for That's example, right. I spend a lot of time in California these days, and there's requirements for, by state law about what the bare minimum is. So everybody just you know, complies with that. Mm -hmm. um, and here, I think we, we make a really big deal about this idea of providing something that's very basic in other markets. That's right. Um, so I think there's there's got to be a way to make this work. Um, but I do think that politically, it's going to be a challenge with mm -hmm. the upcoming election. Mm -hmm. I think there's a reason why we're seeing it be recommended at the, at the uh, city council level as a study right now, right. <laughs> which right. kind of pushes it out that's beyond right. the uh, that's right. election. That's you saw that to, clearly, right? To, to, to get a little breathing room on the issue, maybe that's not right. make it around, you know, a litmus test for the election. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I think, you know, it's, it's not something that's going to go away in terms of interest. That's right. You know, Janice, the idea that uh, for some businesses that have a business, say a location in the unincorporated part, they also have a business here and now, but you see what I mean? It's a bit of a mess there if you've got a multi-location situation there. Can that be worked through? Is that just a little stumbling block along the way? Was that a sign of a, some, a fundamental problem with this whole thing? Uh, well, I would say, so I'm just thinking about the businesses in the, uh, in the county area who, mm -hmm. who struggle with just our tax base. Sure. Uh, because it's different. That's it's right. different in That's the county right. than it is here. Um, but I think um, there are a couple of things happening. Mm -hmm. One is PTO is a standard for many. That's paid time off. We don't care what you do. Right. Uh, so it's really not about sick leave. This is about attracting the very best employees mm -hmm. that you could get. It's a benefit package. But small companies, this is going to hurt a lot. Mm -hmm. It is really going to hurt because when you go from being a sole proprietor to the first employee, big step. Second step, the same. I don't I know agree. anybody who wants to have sick people, but on the other side, you can't run a business without your employees. Right. So the language about uh, uh, for any reason, um, you know, I mean, who's going to enforce this? Come on. Right, right. Um, and so the more regulation you put on business, the more people saying, you know, I'm not going to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in a community where we only have big businesses. I want, I like those small businesses. I like the innovation that they bring to the market. Sure. So uh, is this coming? I do think PTO is a standard workforce benefit. Mm -hmm. uh, but do we really need the city or county telling us to do the right thing, and I just don't think so. There's always going to be bad actors, sure. but I think they're the minority. Interesting point there. Kathy, one of the things that uh, struck me was the idea that this is easier because if you do paid sick leave and things like that, it's just a whole other ball, you know, kettle of fish, as right. they say. Health, you get a lot of reporting, you have to report up to lots of agencies. 
as Jenna says, just do what you want with your time off. You know what I mean? And we're not involved with it. Isn't that the better way to go at this point? And just leave the paid sick leave thing behind, that idea behind? Um, I think that is it better or is it semantics? And I think a part of it is, you know, it's six and one and half a dozen of the other. Right. And I believe that, that it is a basic thing that businesses should do. Mm -hmm. Not all small businesses are against it. Mm -hmm. um, I have, you know, a colleague who runs a small business who was a proponent of the paid sick leave law mm -hmm. and was very visibly out in front about the fact that he does it in his business, owns a restaurant, mm -hmm. um, and he said, I ran the numbers, and this is a former banker, um, and he ran the numbers and he said, this is something that I can do, mm -hmm. and I feel like I should do it because I want good employees. Sure. And so he offers that as a benefit, and then he winds up having employees that want stay with his company. Um, so right. I believe right. that it's something that if people will take a serious look at what the actual numbers are, mm -hmm. that it makes sense because it will account for the amount of turnover mm -hmm. that you have in your business, which mm -hmm. costs more, I think, in the long run. Is that enough of an argument for the business community in your mind's eye? Because think about this. Pat Davis has had his sick leave ordinance sort of parked mm -hmm. for a while there. He doesn't have the votes in council. Right. Doesn't have the support out in the community in a certain sense. I mean, the polling shows, if I'm, if I'm correct here, that there's a slight approval for this thing. Yes. But is that enough for the I business community? I think it's community? enough, and that 2017 ballot initiative was very poorly done. It was single-sided. It was double-sided, single-spaced, and you know people you know didn't really understand what was on the ballot. Yeah. Um, so I think that if it had been done differently, that it would have passed. Tom, is it statewide or bust at this point? Do, do you know what I mean here? Do we need some consistency? This is what we're hearing from business owners as well. Is that consistency everywhere to do business in New Mexico? And Not all necessarily. You have okay. different uh, tax rates uh, based on which county you're doing right. business in. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I see that more as an excuse more than anything else. Okay. I think one of the, you know, a couple of quick things. We Please. transitioned from a, uh, like a, Sick, we transitioned to PTO system about three uh, three years ago, and it worked tremendously well for us. Did it? Okay. We had vacation time and sick time. I just got tired of trying to be the sick time police. Right. So right. I don't right. get paid enough for that mm. stuff. Um, but when it comes to the county, what I really like about this is now mm -hmm. they have another requirement for their vendors and contractors. Because remember about maybe uh, six months ago, mm -hmm. the county adopted um, that they would require that their contractors and vendors abide by the same rules that the county puts out and expects its right. citizens, uh, constituents to live in as right. well. Right. And so, you know, I think that that's a good thing because it's basically backing up their belief process with their pocketbook. Right. And uh, so I think that that's really good as well. Interesting point there. Now, this conversation has touched on how cities and counties take care of some of their most vulnerable citizens. I want to spend a few minutes now talking about the Americans with Disabilities Act. It's supposed to create accessible spaces for people living with disabilities, but as advocate Terry O'Hare explained to me earlier this week, cities have a hard time measuring up. We spoke for a Facebook Live session in advance of Disability Employment Awareness Month. That's in October. Now, this part of our conversation focused on the giant one Albuquerque sculpture you've probably seen that unintentionally got in the way of part of the community. We also talked about her personal experience with Albuquerque's overall ADA compliance.
So I'm here with Terry O'Hare. She is an advocacy for disability here in Albuquerque, and you might have seen her on the news during the One Albuquerque Sculpture situation that came up a couple of weeks ago. Terry, thank you for coming and really appreciate it. You're welcome. Let's talk about disability here in, in, uh, in mobility. I should probably have a better word there, mobility. But let me start with the One Albuquerque situation. What was the basic problem with that statue as it turned out? What, what, what happened there? Well, um, I think really the first issue with it is that it was done somewhat in a vacuum, you know, a public piece of art mm -hmm. probably should have gone through a public review. Certainly there should have been plans reviewed by folks at the city uh, and specifically for issues like ADA compliance. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say that it started maybe in planning. And then um, I understand that it was designed and it ended up being too heavy mm -hmm. placed on the Civic Plaza. And so they moved it right in the street and they put it right in the passageway, the pedestrian walkway uh -huh. between uh, Civic Plaza and the, cent the convention center. Right. And they almost placed it on top of the detectable warning bumps that tell blind cane users you're about to cross a street. Uh -huh. So these are, these are regulated and federally mandated, and they were like inches from the edge of the statue. Mm -hmm. S and, and then the design itself had compliance problems, but mm. um, that was kind of the beginning of it. There was an event that you were part of on a Saturday down there where the folks were there with canes and showing some folks in the city what the actual problem was. It was very interesting to see the pictures of folks with canes because, again, folks with sight don't think about these things. We're going to get to that in a quick second, but sure. how, what's the resolution on the, on the one Albuquerque situation now? Would someone with a cane feel safe, is someone safe now to, to approach it, or is it still a problem? Um, I think the city may say that they feel it's resolved, right. but actually, according to ADA guidance and technical uh, specifications, the barrier that is placed around the protrusion edge still does not meet uh, ADA. I see. It's a series of potted plants, there's gaps between them, and they're not fixed and stable. You know, you could run up and bump into them and knock them over. Mm -hmm. um, it, it certainly lets you know if you're a sighted person mm -hmm. that, you know, stay away from this big edge that's sticking out. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think the disability community really feels that though the, the, the sculpture has been dealt with appropriately mm -hmm. in terms of a solution gotcha. that is safe and meets ADA. Is there a dialogue with the city? Somewhat. Okay. Um, uh, there was after some of the articles, there was, there was very little dialogue during and before, right. none before. Mm -hmm. But since some of the media, there's been um, a response by the mayor's office that they will contact me um, today, actually, mm. about setting up a meeting. Okay. So that's hopeful. You yeah, know. yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Let's broaden out a little bit and talk about ADA here in the city. You've been a member of the ADA Advisory Committee for here in Albuquerque, and you've been around the situation, certainly, with the city. There was an audit in 2017 that showed, and I've been reading it the past couple of nights, mm -hmm. that Albuquerque is wildly out of compliance on a lot of ADA issues here. Things I never would have thought mm -hmm. of. It, it just it was much bigger in scope than I thought about. It, what, what's your sense of that audit, and where are we now on that situation? Well, you're, I think you're referring to the Inspector General's right. review. Um, nothing has been done since that audit was done. Um, the city does have an ADA advisory board. Mm -hmm. The board has used this audit to constantly communicate with the mayor's office, with different department heads, right. and with the acting ADA coordinator, and say, let's start implementing this. 
but there has been, uh, frankly, no response in terms of an action plan based on it. Wow. So, What does the community want to see happen first? Is there, is there a list of priorities? Is there a, a sense of what has, in order for the first domino to fall, they all have to come after. What's the first one? The first one, mm -hmm. honestly, that would help all the other dominoes, yeah. is for the city to get very serious about hiring a qualified, experienced ADA coordinator. And, uh, and it should be a national search. You know, why limit it just to the state? Right. These people exist in other cities. They'd mm -hmm. love to come move to the mountains. Um, and it, it really, someone like this needs to have uh, the salary and the stature and the authority mm -hmm. and the respect, you know, by the administration and department heads to really take ADA and, and do a matrix over the city and see where we are, where we need to go, mm -hmm. what we may have fixed, what still is ahead of us, mm -hmm. and, and really create a plan for doing that and a budget. So if that person was in place, um, one would hope that the city would then budget, mm -hmm. you know, and in the past we've seen 400,000 here, 200,000 there, and we need to be in the, you know, upper millions yearly. Oh, no kidding. Yes. Really? Okay. You know, before we build soccer stadiums, if I may say, it's all right. we need yeah. to focus on getting uh, uh, this particular issue. You know, it's federally mandated. This right. isn't just a feel-good thing. That's right. Uh, but we should be in compliance right. or be, be really far along the way of getting there. Gotcha. No, no city is completely compliant. Mm -hmm. But a, a really strong ADA coordinator, um, I always recommend that it be a person with lived experience, and that means a person with a disability mm -hmm. because, you know, in no other city department or section in our city would we think to bring in, you know, an outside voice from a whole other community and make that be in charge of, mm -hmm. of another representative community. Mm -hmm. So from within is good and, and benefits the city so much. Sure. So, and yeah. one, of the, one of the pushbacks I hear sort of anecdotally on the street is, okay, it may cost a lot of money to do this, um, and folks deserve to have it. Certainly, citizenry that is disabled deserves to have it. But the amount of money for the amount of people nexus, do you know what I mean? People get weird about that. How, what are we talking about here when we're talking about disabled folks here at either in the metro or statewide? Or, mm -hmm. Are there numbers in that, that kind of realm? Well, I think there are, you know, I think, and it's easy, I, you know, before you really understand the issue, mm -hmm. it's easy to go. I hardly see any folks with disabilities ever anywhere. Right. <laughs> but, but research, census, and our own Department of Health in the state show that nationally, uh, one in five folks has a disability. Wow. So that's census. And in our state, one in four have a disability, so 25%. So we have a higher incident of disability in our state and um, some of the reasons that we don't see folks out and about mm -hmm. is because they know that there's not going to be cell interpreters. That's right. There may be, uh, you know, issues. They teach us in Greek tragedy that the great ones, the heroes that come and are, are faced with a catastrophe are knocked down into the place where most humanity lives. And it's from their and their lives have been destroyed. And it's there the Greek tragedy wants to look at a man and say, now you, your knowledge of yourself, now in this place, is what it is to be human. New Mexico is once again in the money. Oil and gas revenue is up to the tune of $907 million. That's 13% above the current state budget. Now the question, Laura Sanchez-Reve, let's get right to it. How do we spend this? <laughs> or do we not? 
do we sit on it and just let this thing accrue? What do we do here? We've got a lot of needs. Well, do we dive in? How do we do this? But I think for anybody who's had to worry, business owners, people who you know do, do their own sort of mm -hmm. side hustle, consulting, whatever, where you have boom and bust cycles, um, the idea of overspending mm. when you have a little bit extra and then possibly not having enough when you have you know those lean times, right. not a good idea okay. long term. And I think in the same way, it's not a good idea for the state to just automatically spend all of that money, especially not on recurring needs. Okay. And, and that's a difficult thing because we have so many recurring needs. Mm -hmm. um, and recurring needs are, you know, obviously a lot of staffing. Education is a recurring need. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of programs that once you grow them, really hard to unwind that. You can't unring that bell. And the money has to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think that every, certainly a lot of people in the Permian Basin, but I think statewide, when you look at the trends um, from oil and gas, we're bound to have a bust coming up. We've mm -hmm. had a boom now for quite a, longer than expected. Mm -hmm. And so it would be very foolhardy to all of a sudden come up with all kinds of new programs that are gonna have to be sustained long-term gotcha. with this new money. Mm -hmm. For me, one of the interesting things was the Lujan Grisham um, uh, suggestion. Somebody sort of brought it up on a recent um, revenue tax uh, stabilization committee mm -hmm. meeting about having a uh, separate permanent fund created for uh, early childhood education. Mm -hmm. That's been a real hot button issue. Um, in terms of tapping into the permanent fund that we already have by the Constitution. Mm -hmm. That's been very separate, very controversial. This would be creating another permanent fund. Um, it, there's a lot of issues there to mm -hmm. unpack, but mm -hmm. I do think that creating some sort of a one-time, mm -hmm. like funding a one-time um, source of ongoing programs might be a way to do it. That is Something where you're actually. not going to have a recurring yeah. um, need every year. Let, let's, I'm glad you brought up recurring first because Janet actually gives me the opportunity to ask about the non-recurring stuff, which is about infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We have a desperate need here um, in our in our state. Uh, <laughs> I just don't want to get into the details, but we just know that. Yes. Is that a viable thing with 907 million and money coming in to supplant the current budget as well? So we're actually doing a little bit better than even the 907 looks like. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But but Laura makes an excellent point. This is one-time money. There is no guarantee that this will be a recurring funding source. So there are some very specific needs that <coughs> I think that they should look at that are one-time. Roads is one. Mm -hmm. You cannot do commerce without roads. And uh, on the Navajo Nation in particular, where we can actually build roads, it's long overdue. Right. Long overdue. Right. But that's not the only thing. We know PERA and ERB are underfunded. A one-time payment would help a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, dark fiber. Let me, let me, How many let me, years have I talked about? Oh, that? I know, I know, I know. You have, let me back you up a quick sec. The P, PERA, the retirement stuff. That's a big deal. This is, is a time bomb. The fuse is lit. You can hear it in the background if you're willing to listen. Yes. Is this an opportunity to pay down some? Yes. Of okay. And uh -huh. you know, how much I, are you willing? How much are you willing to put on the table? To, I would say so. I so if you asked me, but if you had asked me when I was serving, I will tell you what the number was. It was two hundred million dollars. That's what you put down, and then you plan to make this solvent. Gotcha. And I sat on that committee, and guess what we did? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. 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 But. There are some other things. Please. We have another mm -hmm. time bomb coming, and mm -hmm. it is called the balloon payment for the rail runner. Oh, gotcha. Yep. And, and so I, I agree with Laura that you need to be fiscally prudent. There is no guarantee, and I do want to remind you, I have been out of the legislature since 2011 right. before I left. There was a bust, and we, yes, I know. It's <laughs> amazing. Did we not do a bit of a refinance on 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 the train, though? Did we? Oh, not we did. Do? We okay. did. There's still a balloon payment. Okay. There is still a balloon payment. Okay. But when I was there, when I started, we had a lot of money right. before I left. We had to cut a billion dollars during the Martinez administration. 
They had a lot of money, That's right. and then they had to cut it's a Dolores billion point. dollars. That's right. And so you really need to look at one-time uh, expenditures that will make a difference long term. Gotcha. And, and so that's what I've outlined. Mm -hmm. Infrastructure. I hear that. Infrastructure. Infrastructure. That's right. Okay. But education's hanging out there too. And we're it spending, is. we're in a mood to spend on education right now. Mm -hmm. Let me throw this in there as well. We also have some recent reporting that is showing a lot of the early childhood stuff is not showing results because we're not in a cohesive place yet which gives a lot of folks who are not crazy about the amount of money we throw at education and more ammunition to say, we're just throwing money at education, not getting a result. What, what do we do with all this extra money with education? Is this the time to really get after it or should we just back up a little bit, let this thing take hold, what the administration wants to do and then get after it? What, what's your sense of it? Well, I think that it makes sense and that everybody who understands how government should run mm -hmm. is that we shouldn't start ramping up expenditures when we don't know if the money is actually gonna be there in the future. Um, so we can use it for one-time expenditures. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that instead of saying that these programs that we have decided are efficacious and evidence-based, mm -hmm. that we don't have real data about for sure whether or not they are, and perhaps they are not, mm -hmm. that we ought to take the opportunity to do some critical evaluation mm -hmm. of those programs. Mm -hmm. We have some money now that we could say, you know, we're not going to, evaluate ourselves. We're going to get some people in from a broad cross-section of people who understand what it's going to take mm -hmm. to improve literacy and numeracy for uh, our education system and that we're going to bring those people in and we're going to take a look at the schools, critically evaluate how we create some, some efficiencies in mm -hmm. the system mm -hmm. that don't currently exist and that we do things that actually are going to provide the transformation that we're looking for. Mm -hmm. So I, I question whether or not uh, we actually have done that, and that's what I would say the money should be used for. Right, right. And if they want to know how, they can ask me. There you go. <laughs> you're, you're, quick cut on education. What do you think? Uh, education, your, yeah. uh, I think they're funded to the extent that it needs to be. What needs to happen, to touch in a little bit, what Catherine was talking about, is it needs to be consolidated. Gotcha. Um, you need to take away a lot of the restrictions and consolidate programs. Uh, focus on what's working and then what's not is move it away. Right. Um, I would say with the surplus, definitely go with uh, infrastructure as uh, Laura and I think the rest of us were saying mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And I would say since we've been losing so many people uh, to Arizona, Colorado and Texas, let's give it back to the people as well. Why concept. not provide a some type of stipend similar to what Alaska does for right. residents and reward us for being New Mexico residents? I love that. Good point. Good stuff. All right. We're talking 2020. Trump in New Mexico when we come back right after the break. A terrific interview with former UNM professor Jim Linnell, who had to learn to walk again right as he was set to retire. We'll explain in a moment. New Mexico is unique in that we do have a, a, a strong amount of independents decline the state. Mm -hmm. um, and these folks are swing voters. So mm -hmm. the state uh, trends Democrat. If all the Democrats turned out all the time, then it would be a solidly blue state. But mm -hmm. it, that doesn't happen. That's right. And so it, it's going to come down to the resources, the targeting. Jim Linnell is a writer, teacher, and director who has left a lasting impact on the University of New Mexico. He helped establish the MFA degree in dramatic writing and is the former dean of the College of Fine Arts. But six months from retirement, he suffered a freak accident that left him almost totally paralyzed. Linnell's new book, Take It Lying Down, chronicles his struggle to regain his independence as he looks back over his life and ponders his future. 
He sat down with NMIF correspondent Megan Kamrick. Jim Linnell, thank you for joining us on New Mexico in Focus. Thanks. Glad to be here. What led you to make a career in theater and teaching? Oh, Lord, I, I'm a creature of the 60s. And uh, people in my age coming out of college were all uh, focused against the idea of doing what your parents did, <laughs> making money, but making a difference and you know, doing something that had meaning. So we weren't thinking about how do I get a career? How do I get a job? We weren't thinking about practicalities. So theater for me was not just only entertainment, but it was a way to make a statement about the world that I thought needed to be changed. You came of age, as you said, in the 60s. You did your PhD at Berkeley. Yeah. Any place and time, <laughs> how did that influence what you wanted to do with theater? Uh, it was a huge uh, experience being at Berkeley. Um, at the same time that I was studying theaters, I would, went there. Only Berkeley would create a PhD in directing. Everybody else had MFAs, but if you went to Berkeley, you had to go for three years. You had to learn two languages and to get, a, to get really a creative degree in, in directing. So it was a, a nutty kind of degree, but it just suited me, who came to the theater from my head, and I had to learn how to attach my head to my heart. And that happened under a lot of pressure, atmospheric pressure being in a, in a kind of war zone between Reagan's ascending in the Alameda Sheriff's Department to control the uh, student demonstrations going on daily on campus. You know, I can still remember sitting on the cafe veranda watching what later turned out on CBS News. A, they tear gassed what they thought was a demonstration, but it was an elementary school. Oh my God. So Walter Cronkite was fussing about that on the evening news that night. No, oh, it was to my final uh, graduating uh, production to, to get my graduate degree uh, happened coincided with the invasion of Cambodia. And nothing went, made university campuses go crazy than Nixon's reneging that he wouldn't go into Cambodia. So I had to fight through my cast, threatening to strike even though I was doing a Brecht anti-war play. So I had to learn a lot of skills suddenly uh, that I would never have learned in another kind of situation. What brought you to New Mexico? Uh, I had got a job at Northwestern University. Lucky, lucky kid. Um, they were desperate in the last minute and hired me over the phone. Didn't have somebody there, missing a faculty member. So I hadn't finished my PhD dissertation. So going back to California to finish it in the summer, we visited a friends who were living in Santa Fe. I'd never been in Santa Fe, never been in New Mexico. And if what happened to me happens to so many people, I got the enchantment trip, you know, <laughs> north into Taos, up into uh, 
Chuchas, and it was just no contest over that. You helped establish the MFA program at the University of New Mexico in playwriting and also an annual festival of new plays that's still taking place. What gave you the most satisfaction as a teacher? Oh, <laughs> the, uh, I started out teaching, directing, and acting when I came to UNM and transitioned into writing and and having a vision of creating a writing program. The greatest satisfaction is watching students find their creative muse, their own creative inner voice, which they have to fight through, their inner critics, their inner uh, doubts, all the things, or to move past every cliche they've learned from television and to watch them find real language that speaks to a, a real emotional life on stage is such a thrill to see that come to life. Theater is among the oldest art forms in the world. Why do you find it such a compelling medium for delving into the nature of humanity? Well, yeah, it is. It just won't give up, will it? <laughs> Even under the early assault of TV. Uh, <clears throat> there's nothing that can replace the live, live in person experience of an actor 20 feet from you, um, taking you to a place where in your own emotional life you'd be afraid to go, and being allowed the chance to see an emotional, an emotional explosion, uh, uh, fears and truths being told about life that the theater tells that in ways that very difficult for it to be done. It happens in film, it happens in great art, in, in all mediums, but theater is unique in the sense that the actor is there in front of you, a life is vulnerable in front of you in, in ways that it doesn't happen in other mediums. That's a great transition to talking about your book because you're very open and vulnerable in this book and it goes into an accident that took place when you were just six months away from retirement, vacationing in Mexico with your family, you stepped off a porch of your rental house and fell. And at the time, it left you a quadriplegic. How did this disrupt your plans for retirement with your wife, Jennifer? Well, it trashed them. <laughs> <laughs> it threw us both into a big trash can. Um, yeah, no, once, uh, once you've been, once your body has been wrecked in the way that um, any touch to your spinal cord is like uh, Spock's, you know, Vulcan uh, mind uh, mm -hmm. grip on your neck, uh, the spinal cord once hit, um, your body is gone after that. And, it takes, in my case, I had an incomplete injury, so it took, I had a chance to come back, but I didn't know that when I fell and I wasn't able to move. The instant you wake up from a fall like that and you're expecting to move your limbs and nothing, your brain says move and nothing happens, your, your, your mind, my mind just went blank. I said I was screwed to my son who was standing over me because I wasn't breathing. And he was trying to, they didn't know what was, was going to happen. So they got me to breathe 
And the minute I knew that I couldn't move, I knew that I was on a, I was on a path. I had no idea what would have, what, where it would lead. I just didn't even want to think about it at the time. But I knew it was the end of the life that I knew I was living. You were medevaced back to Albuquerque, but you wound up at Craig Hospital in Denver for three months. Do you mind reading that passage where you talk about, you basically compare what was happening to you to a Hieronymus Bosch painting (laughs) who painted pictures of hell. (laughs) (laughs) When we flew out of Cabo, we flew past a land formation called El Cajon del Diablo, or the Devil's Drawer. As we fly out of Albuquerque toward Denver, we fly past mountains named Sangre de Cristo, the devil mashed against the blood of Christ. It feels like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. My body feels like a scene with devils dancing around a fiendish device constructed by Christianity's fever dream of sin and its consequences. I am crammed into a drawer made of wire mesh. My nose sticks through a gap on one end, and my toes poke out of the other, my body tied naked inside. My skin mimics the feeling of devils hopping about with buckets of hot coals and chunks of ice that they throw on top of the drawer while one jiggles it so they drop through the wire gaps. An old crone dances a spastic jig carrying a sharp stick she erratically jabs into my left shoulder. That's one of the many references you have to art or to theater or to literature. How did that help you cope with, for a while, you had a complete loss of autonomy. You couldn't move. You had a tracheal tube. You have choices once you realize how really messed up you are, how really terrible your situation is. You can say, why me, and you know, go down the rabbit hole about I don't deserve this and retreat. And, and you have to deal with suffering. You've been chosen to suffer in a way, not that you're the most unique sufferer in the world. Suffering is everywhere in our, on our planet as we know. But you have to say to yourself, how do I, how do I accept suffering? Why, what is my, is it, is it just that I've been beaten down and I have to complain and I become an endless whiner that nobody ever wants to be around? So for me, I was always a nutcase about the Greeks. And it's from the Greeks that I learned how to accept suffering and see it in a way that is an integrated weave into, the human, into our human nature. They taught us, they teach us in Greek tragedy that the great ones, the heroes that come and are, are faced with a catastrophe are knocked down into the place where most humanity lives. And it's from there, and their lives have been destroyed. And it's there the Greek tragedy wants to look at a man and say, now you, your knowledge of yourself now in this place is what it is to be human. So to see its suffering is just a deeper level at which I have to learn to be human. It was an enormous help for me. When you left the Denver hospital, they basically gave you a two-year window to make yes. improvement. How did your wife, Jennifer, motivate you to keep moving even when it was really painful and you didn't want to do it? 
<laughs> you, you would be hard-pressed to find Jennifer ever sitting in her lovely house. She is, she is a creature in constant motion. She's a performer, professional dancer. And the idea that your body hurts or that it's too much trouble to do something for a woman who exercises constantly and knew what it meant to truly move through pain to learn the, to make her art with her own body. So she has no patience to hear me whining about why I don't want to do it. And it's just her, const, her constant example that stop being, stop talking about it, just get up and keep doing it. So it would be, I would know that I would not long have her around me should I have failed at the task of getting off my butt and moving. You actually were just, you're getting better with more movement and then your insurance dis company decides you've had your total allotment of therapy. Yeah, How did you deal with that? Well, we were lucky we, Jennifer taught Pilates, she knew about Pilates and we knew that there were really skilled teachers in town. We found one named Colleen Cummings and she started with me when I was just back from the hospital uh, because the insurance company says, oh, you're a guy that needs PT, you get 20 sessions. Well, I'm a guy who needs PT all the rest of my life having a spinal cord injury. You know, I think it's interesting. You made this remarkable progress in your two-year window. Now you're somewhat more mobile. Um, you have a walker. And the doctors gave you that time to improve. Um, and you worked with your therapist, with Jennifer. You went back to the rehab hospital in Denver so they can gauge your progress. And you wanted to tell them, like, look at all this stuff I've done. Don't you want to know about it? And the researchers don't seem interested. Why? Uh, there's, there's no good reason for it except they have a myopic view of what uh, research can do to the things they need to collect to help somebody like me. Yeah, I was like a kid that went back and said, when I went back, they, they, they bring you back to say, what's happened since we worked with you? Let's test you and see how you're doing. I was the only kid there with my little bright walker walking around. Everybody else is still in their wheelchair. So I kept, they kept saying, wow, look at you. Isn't that great? I said, yeah, don't you want to know what I did? And they said, sure, we'll send you to the researchers. Went to a quantitative guy. He said, you're just a... N of one, you're just an example of one. We can't deal with you. Go to the qualitative lady. She says, well, how long, when did this happen? Was it within two years? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure it was. Don't you want to know what we did to get me to where I am? And she says, mm, maybe not. We'll send you to the magazine. We have a magazine. <laughs> and she said, I'll, but neither the magazine or the researcher could think of the idea that these oral stories, me and many others who ended up in different places who had incomplete injuries, would be of tremendous use to somebody who say, oh, I didn't think about doing that, I could use that. So no, they, it's, for me it's just uh, laziness masquerading mm. as science. 
how are you now? Uh, I am still, I have a body that's like a video game. <laughs> in what way? There's <laughs> <laughs> spasms every day in various ways. The worst spasm I have right now is one I call my kryptonite spasm. I get a specific spasm because of I get a pinched nerve in my hip because I've been sitting in a certain way or sleeping in a certain way. And if I put my foot down, I can't, it won't bear weight. It crumples or it shoots back up. So it takes me many minutes of stretching to work that out so I can even walk again. The greatest terror for me, and it was true when I was at Craig, is that something will take my, ad my advance away again. Mm. Something will put me back to where I was. So I have these terrors about losing what I've got. So whenever something happens that I feel like I can't, you know, it's really hard to walk again, I go into these panic attacks. But, you know, it's, uh, I can walk uh, and I should walk more as Jennifer is listening, is speaking to me in the back of my mind, uh, much more than I, I am doing. And I pay for it if I sit around too long because I get, I live in my head and I like to write. So I sit too long and, uh, and pay for it by getting up and being stiff and not being to move well. Could you read a passage from Take It Lying Down, your book? Um, it's near the end. Yes, sure. I know now that after I fall, it is not so easy to jump up, brush yourself off and join in again. I know life is cruel and capricious with equal measures of goodness. Where I fell as an adult is lush with palm trees, has wide sandy beaches and achingly blue water that teems with giant whales elegantly traveling to their breeding grounds. That one bad thing happens does not change the fact that one good thing happens that these circumstances occur next to each other by seconds. There is no logic or belief that makes sense of this. There is only persistence, patience, and the wonder of our connection to others who miraculously love us as we love them. Is this enough to keep us in the game? A game we know has no certain rules. And is it? <laughs> It has for me. Jim, thank you so much for coming and talking about your life in theater and your new book. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being interested in my story. President Trump lost New Mexico, as he might say, bigly. In 2016, Hillary Clinton beat him by more than eight percentage points, and that was with native son Gary Johnson siphoning off that 9% of the presidential vote. But the Trump campaign says the state is in play for the president and Janice. Do you see an angle here? Is it voter turnout? Is it, what's, the, what's the way in here for, to make up those? That's a big, that's a big percentage. Oh, it's a big, yeah. big percentage. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't have any uh, crystal ball, but I have some observations. Okay. And, and the first is um, when President Trump made his run, he was going to places like Ohio and Michigan. Other people, people bypassed that. He said he was going to win. He did. That's right. Um, the fact that he has announced that he, New Mexico is in play will dramatically change our landscape. And if you think that it will just be the Trump team coming in mm -hmm. without the Democrats mounting an opposition, you're just silly mm -hmm. because that's not going to happen. Right. But the activity 
will make a huge difference. And I believe if he throws his resources in here, uh, you will see a state that is in play. Is there angst about the amount of resources that came last time around? I remember talking to Republicans last time around, said there just wasn't enough activity. He came a couple of times and, but you know what I mean? No but money. no money, right, there, there was no money I'm telling here. you what, there was no money. And right. if you look at all of the financial reports from last time, uh, the the ratio for candidates uh, was about 10 to 1. Wow. There was no money. Okay. Uh, but I think from what I see, see, the president says, here's a state that nobody thinks we can win. I like that challenge. Right, right, I'm right. going. There you go. What's the response, Kathy, for that? Uh, my response mm -hmm. was, are they kidding? Um, was this a joke? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that New Mexicans can be bought. Um, and, you know, Trump throwing a lot of money into New Mexico, I don't think is is gonna overcome mm -hmm. all of the, the bad things that have happened, but I think that they're looking for pro-gun Democrats and uh, people who are pro-life and hoping that they can siphon off some percentages in, in that way. Mm -hmm. But I just don't think that throwing more money at the state is gonna change our ideologies. I know it won't change mine. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe that the Democratic Party will step up and just say that you know New Mexico is not for sale. Mm -hmm. Don't care how much money you have. I know that he said we were uh, loaded up with money um, in one of the news cycles, and and I'm thinking that Janice must have mine because I didn't didn't benefit from those things. So um, I believe. <laughs> I didn't get it either. Yeah, you know. So I don't know where all this money came from. Yeah. But you know, if you got a lot of money and you want to throw it around, um, I guess you know he can come to New Mexico. Right. You know, Tom. There's other things in the air that affect us. You know, immigration. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll just stick with immigration. <laughs> just have one thing. Sure. That's a deal breaker for a lot of Democrats. Certainly, they're just not going to go there with this president. You know, how does how does he how do they work any territory that might not be claimed, so to speak? The DTS out there? Are there votes to be had for the president? Um, there are. When I'm you consider sure. immigration and things yeah, like that. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure immigration is that wedge issue to okay. get the middle of the road. Okay. Um, you know, immigration is will motivate the right. Will motivate the left. Um, is he going to take Las Cruces, Santa Fe, and Albuquerque? Absolutely not. Right. Uh, you know that would be a crazy set of circumstances. Right. Uh, could he be able? Could his system be able to motivate votes along more votes along the eastern part of the state and along the western part of the state? Um, they have they've pulled out a miracle or two in other battleground states. Mm -hmm. um, then they do have a very effective system. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that possibility is there, as you know, Catherine alluded to. You know, the Second Amendment uh, tends to be a big issue. But are there other issues for the independent right. uh, that is going to offset their you know appeal mm -hmm. uh, for another uh, four years of Trump? Good point there. Steve Pierce was quoted uh, that he feels is a good chance as well for the president. But I'm wondering. What about the wall? What if the land is taken, as the president is proposing right now, to take private land and pardon people who take it down the road? Um, what would that do to, the, to, to his chances in that, in that part of our state, down by the border? Is, is he on safe ground there with the wall situation, or is that going to be impactful? So I, th I do think that the wall has an effect, but mm -hmm. it has more of an effect of, po of polarizing people. So people who are already... And I think this table probably is, you know, a good example of that. Mm -hmm. Those of us who are already staunchly on one side or the other, we're not going to right. change necessarily. Mm -hmm. The wall is going to make us more fervent in our um, support or opposition to Trump. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we're, you know, New Mexico is unique in that we do have a, a, a strong amount of independence declined to state. Mm -hmm. um, and these folks are swing voters. So mm -hmm. the state uh, trends Democrat. If all the Democrats turned out all the time, then it would be a solidly blue state. But mm -hmm. it, that doesn't happen. That's right. And so it, it's going to come down to the resources, the targeting. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that there's a Gary Johnson effect 
um, mm. that happened last time. Mm-hmm. He did very well in the state, uh, one of the only states he did well in, so obviously <laughs> for obvious reasons. That's right. I do think that there was not just Republicans, there probably was some Republicans, but there were a lot of people in the middle who voted for him. Right. So mm-hmm. they were looking for some alternative mm-hmm. to Trump, and so it'll be interesting if they see an alternative to him that they find um, uh, tolerable, uh, whatever whatever mm-hmm. it may be. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to come down to the wall for them. I don't necessarily think it'll come down to immigration. On the issue of guns, I do mm-hmm. think there's a strong Second Amendment, obviously, support base mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. Uh, on both sides of the aisle. Yep. But mm-hmm. I also think that the recent tragedy in El Paso has had a, a chilling effect on that to a certain extent. I think people are starting to have more of a conversation about what does it mean to have more background checks? What does it mean to have, you know, to entertain a discussion about assault-style weapons? Um, because it happened so close to home, and right. then soon after that, there was also the issue in Roswell where somebody was arrested because he was, um, you know, apparently had a cache of guns, and, mm-hmm. you know, people are sort of on edge and reacting to that, um, to that, to what happened in El Paso, and and it, I think that makes people a little more mm-hmm. um, scared and a little more interested in. Um, and making their voice heard with their vote. That's an interesting point there. You know, interesting, interestingly, when you think about this, Janice, since we don't know his, who his opponent's going to be, right. we, it's, we're just musing here because that, that factor has to be factored right. in there, who that Democrat is going to be. But I say again, is there, are we making a mistake here in New Mexico when we look at the greater landscape and we think we know what's going to happen between Democrats and Republicans? Given what you said earlier, what happened in Ohio and Michigan and other places, the man just pulls off surprises left and right. And what did, to your view as a Republican, what do Democrats have to do to kind of win this race here? Is there something they need to do better against Mr. Trump? Or? Give us well, advice, Janice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I actually, you know, with, uh, with all respect to uh, Brian Egoff, he has boots on the ground. But this does come down to money and boots on the ground. You know, we've got five DMAs. This is an expensive state. But mm-hmm. when he says, when the president says he is coming, one, you don't know what he's going to do. Uh, which may be an advantage. And the one thing we haven't talked about, Mm -hmm. do polls matter? Mm -hmm. In the last election, if you looked at all the polls, they were all wrong. So what does that mean in our state? And I think that they're still having problems polling to say, here's our crystal ball and we know we're accurate because we don't know. Exactly point. Uh, Kathy, interestingly, we don't have a governor's race to hitch this thing on. Right. But we do have legislative races going on and a Senate race going on. Any change there? Does that mean anything for this upcoming presidential? And what we do here in New Mexico and how we vote. I mean, I think Democrats are going to turn out um, for this election because we we are proud of the fact that our state has turned blue. Right. Um, and right. we want to keep it that way. And I'm hoping that new leadership in the Democratic Party is going to mobilize voters and and be energized. And um, I think that that the president coming here is is, is just going to energize Democratic base mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a reason why Pence, uh, Vice President Pence, went to Roswell right. as the first official visit from the Trump administration to New Mexico. Might have been Artesia, I believe. What's yeah, that? Artesia. 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 Right. That's right. Well, even more so, a little right. bit farther south. Yeah, exactly right. You know, Good point. The second congressional <laughs> district. That's right. And I think you get, you know, the Republicans could be thinking that if they get a large voter turnout in the second congressional, that that could help them statewide as far as take the electoral votes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We can't right. discount Sochil Toda Small. Okay. Right. Not at all. You know, I was just about to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. She's definitely going to, you know, she's got a strong um, operation. She's got mm-hmm. a lot of support. Mm-hmm. Um, she's got national support as well. So I think it's going to be a really so, tough fight for that second But a, a casual mm-hmm. observation, uh, so she will not draw an opponent. This is going to be a fierce 
primary on the other side. And what we've seen across the state is if you run and you have no opponent in the primary, you are invisible. Our media does that. Mm -hmm. And it will make, put her at a disadvantage. Interesting point I there. mean, I've already seen stuff for her, um, you know, in the media, so I think she's aware of that and she's gonna plan for that. She's mm -hmm. smart. Well, I hope gonna, so, but, but yeah. you know, it's the other way around. And I think she has money, but I think the other side with the uh, uh, introduction of Claire Chase, who has independent money, she doesn't have to raise money. That's right. Uh, it makes That's a difference. Right. Interesting point. That's all the time we have with this group. Our conversation continues on Facebook. Just find our New Mexico in Focus page and join in. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. Stay safe this holiday weekend. We'll see you again next week in Focus. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you.